0: Welcome to Queering Left, a podcast from Crossroads Fund. I'm Emmanuel Garcia.
1: And I'm Jean Crocker, and we are the hosts of Queering Left. Crossroads Fund is a public foundation in Chicago. We provide funding to community organizations, activists, and movements who are working for racial, social, and economic justice. For more information, please visit our website, CrossroadsFund.org.
0: Our guests on this episode of Queering Left are Isha Love and Benji Hart, discussing the carceral state and organizing efforts towards defunding and dismantling the prison industrial complex. Isha Love is a black trans woman from Chicago's West Side who was incarcerated in Cook County Jail for nearly four years after being arrested for defending herself in a violent confrontation. Benji Hart is an author, artist, activist, and educator living in Chicago. He was most recently an adult ally organizer with the No Cop Academy campaign. Isha and Benji discussed the violence of the carceral system, the experience of being criminalized, and what building a healthy community free of police and prisons would look like.
2: Hi, my name is Isha Love. Um, I identify by pro- pronouns as she and her.
3: My name is Benji. Um, thank y'all so much for having me. Um, I go by any pronoun set with respect and identify as Black, gender
0: nonconforming, femme, person. And just a little follow-up to that, um, when did you first start identifying as... Uh, either trans, queer, gender non-conforming.
2: Um, I identify as um basically a female figure, well, a woman. I'm saying that happens to be transgender. Um, yeah, but um, I started identifying as trans. What well, maybe more so, I say queer because I was discovering myself. And when you're discovering yourself more so, you kind of like finding out who you really are, what you want to be, who is this person inside that you're trying to discover, you know, to become. So I, I would say I was queer in my younger days, but as I got older, I kind of discovered I wanted to be this beautiful, bright, you know, black trans woman, you know. So, yeah, that's how I came about my transition.
3: I think it's pretty similar for me. I came out as gay when I was 14, so ninth grade. And I actually don't know when I started using the term queer, but I know that sort of as, as I grew in my identity and began to see my identity as more political and not just individual, gay became less and less relevant and queer felt more empowering to me. And as I began to explore my attraction to other people, I realized I wasn't just attracted to cis men. So that also became an important part of identifying as queer for me. Um, but my gender identity also came a lot later. Um, and I've really only been identifying as gender nonconforming or not cis for like three years or four years. So it's been like a much later part in my process as well that I actually started uh, questioning my gender identity. I think I was questioning my sexuality pretty early on, but that's the language that I had been exposed to at that time. So I think it took some some growth and some moving through the world and through other circles to be like, oh, I think there's more going on here. Than just my sexuality or just my sexual identity,
1: you know. So we just we decided to do this this series, these discussions with with queer activists, with queer folks who are working in in struggle around lots of different issues, um, because of the fiftieth anniversary of the Stonewall Rebellion and. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we'd like you to to talk about, if you can, is when did you first learn about Stonewall and how did it impact, you know, you when you heard about it?
2: Just recently, I'm saying of uh, watching um, Marsha uh, P. Johnson um, documentary it kinda opened me up to understand more so because people was like, Okay, this is this person. I'm like, Okay, well I never you know knew who she was, but learning her, I'm saying, and seeing her public lives on the internet and things like that she kind of opened the doors up to me to get an understanding of understand what uh, 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 Wildstone was really, was how this was discovered. I didn't really know too much. I'm saying I just went into the documentary and started looking. I'm saying I was interested. I'm interested in trying to figure out what was really going on within the documentary. I'm saying because now, in today's times, you got to really kind of do your research. You know, and I kind of know that now. I'm saying, you know, you just can't really say things. You got to really go into research and finding out what it's about and like what went on in, in those times. So... Yeah, that's when I really found that I'm saying it was a lot of um, people really trying to stand up for, you know, their identity is what's going on today. You know, as, as trans women, we kind of going through situations and seeing similarities. So, yeah, that's why I feel like I kind of discovered where, you know, it started from.
3: You know, coming out at 14, there was so much history I didn't know and just so much about the larger queer world that I didn't know. and And definitely I have a lot of early memories of feeling like, Uh, being black and being queer were diametrically opposed to each other and and feeling like I couldn't be both at the same time and uh and yeah that to be one was to negate the other and be it was very confusing to to be navigating that as a very young uh black queer person and it was actually voguing in the ballroom scene was the first time that I I realized not only that black queer people existed but that we exist in large numbers and have our own culture and have our own community and have our own history um so for that reason ballroom was really revolutionary for me to discover or you know learn about for the first time around around when i was 16 um but i really didn't learn about stonewall until years later um and it was a similar for me it was like a similar kind of of feeling i think as when i first learned about the ballroom scene but on like an even larger scale where i was like oh this black queer trans thing goes back even further than I thought and like the roots go even deeper than I thought and this event that I kind of vaguely knew about as like queer people fighting for their rights and beginning the the gay rights movement actually was started by black immigrant brown trans and gender non-conforming people in the same way that the barroom scene was and like actually like our history is at the core of all this stuff not just Not just this one part of it, but literally at the center of all of it, I think was so empowering and so exciting for me to learn as a as a young black queer person.
0: Um, Just like how do you see your own liberation, um, activism work connected to the participants? I mean, you mentioned Marsha P. Johnson and the ballroom scene. Like, how do you see um, your life connected to that?
2: You know, certain situations, us as trans women, we go through so many obstacles in life, like, you know, just the ups and downs, just finding ourselves, just being who we are, getting criticized, getting ridiculed, people not liking us and just all the things that I think that people misunderstand that, you know, we are still human, that we tend to lash out and do, you know, some crazy things. And I would definitely say today I did lash out, you know, as a black trans Angry trans woman, you know, of just being tired of being tired of being tired of just people just picking with me for my the reason of me just being me, you know. So I think that's something that I think there's going to always have connection because a lot of girls they always say to me, like, well, Isha, I understand what you go through because I'm saying I had those moments I'd be so angry and I just don't know. You just You just, Tick out you know, and it's, it's it's. I want girls to understand it. it's it's okay because we went through so much that sometimes people don't understand. You just you get tired and you just lanch out on person and you don't understand that it. is that sometimes we need counseling? You need somebody to talk to you to kind of con- soothing you a little bit. But I think that's the connection. I think that we will always have in my situation, in a sense, part of of a connection of what I have will be le- left on. I think, in a sense.
3: I think for me uh in some ways it's really painful that you know things that that Marsha P and Sylvia Rivera were standing up for in 1969 we're like still fighting for and still um lacking and and still you know needing mass organizing around and at the same time it makes me feel very rooted and very grounded to be like we are part of a tradition we are part of a legacy and and we're also carrying a fight forward um And not letting it drop and not letting it fall or be forgotten and and i think it's really powerful i think part of what's important about coming into your identity as a queer person is that it's you i think queerness pushes us to understand our identities not just as individual and not just it's not just about me and me uh me you know being myself or getting to live my life freely as an individual. But for me as a queer person, a gender non-conforming person, a black person, a femme person, like when you start layering everything onto it, for me to be free, for me to live my life in a full, healthy, happy way, which I deserve, which I have the right, um, all of these systems have to change. And, and by me as a, 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 a multiple oppressed or a, a multiply marginalized person, to demand freedom actually brings freedom for for millions of people is is actually the demands that I'm making, the demands that you're making while they might be about our individual personhood when we understand them through a queer lens, it's like, oh, but by me getting this thing, everybody's getting this thing. So it's
2: like you're helping others what I how i I, I identify by putting myself on the line to help others. Exactly. I get what you're saying. I definitely understand mm-hmm. definitely that's right because that's how it goes, in a sense.
1: So, Isha, you know, you mentioned, and uh, we know uh, as part of your, your your life story that you were a formerly incarcerated person. And can you explain um, as, as well as you can in this brief time that we have together how the police and criminal justice system failed you um, and fail to protect you uh, or serve you justice
2: well they failed to protect us on many situations just off the strength of just how they uh really follow the guidelines of how they treat us like you know sometimes they always go off already having this pre um understanding of how to, to go about treating us based off already not liking us so they just like go off like, well, just being ignorant, just being national. And it's just sometimes cause that you to feel like, OK, well, how you being this person of the law? I'm saying having me and want me to follow the rules of what you demanded me to do, but you treat me a certain type of way. You know, so I just feel like overall, I'm saying being mistreated in a sense of just off my identity because how I choose to want to identify myself as. That's already cruelty. And it, it makes me feel a certain type of way off that just off back. So I feel like the mistreating came about just just not respecting me as who I am. That's one. Now to say that how the criminal justice system failed me, many ways than one, honey. They didn't feel, <laughs> well, I would just say for one, I'm saying starting off, I'm saying I feel like um, sitting in prison for four years without a trial is a lot. Like, you know, I think for average case, they say that you should be sitting in jail to find some type of understanding of some coming about within your case within eighteen months, in a sense. But for me, four years. Now within those four years, me sitting there, you guys, I wasn't really aware of what was going on while I was in there. And I have been so I've been saying on and on that it's supposed to be a memoir of a book of telling like my inside of what happened in prison. Now, me being in prison, I had multiple multiple um public defenders. So when you have a multiple public defenders, I have four public defenders within that four years. (laughs) How is it either one of those public defenders going to really go in and defend me the right way if they're not really on my case at a long period of time? So it was like I kept consistently coming in getting different public defenders, different public defenders, different public. So it was in a sense of my ass, I had no hope. So I feel this on a sense of for me, I feel like they failed me in multiple ways because in in the situation of having a public defender, it was a situation in the midst of in my case that they tried to say that they upgraded my case in the sense. Let me just break it down to everyone. I had a, a court appearance to come to court, and it was just out the blue. So come to, later come to find out I'm saying well me having a lawyer that took My case with Bono, Dan Corn I love this man so much, thank him the God, Jesus, but he came In and took my uh, case and came And gave me a detail and said you know what love They told you that you Had a court appearance on that situation But come to find out he was the Reason why his leg was amputated. so he Was the particular reason why the situation His leg being amputated, but they pinned it on me Well, well she don't know so this upgrade the charges so it was just like I felt like I'm saying for them to do that, it made it like look like the states and the justice system really don't really have hope for no one. They just looking for any small thing to kind of pin against you to hold you down, in a sense.
1: How, how does I mean maybe th- th- discuss a little bit about? I know you've been involved, Benji, with the, uh, abolition movements, and how kind of as a, you know, as a queer activist and uh, how do you sort of see those connections between what's going on for queer folks, transgender folks in the system, how abolition may intersect with that, and some of you could talk a little bit about some of your work around that.
3: I'm thinking a lot right now about uh, Lailene Polanco in New York. You know, tomorrow, from the day they were recording. Tomorrow, November fourteenth is Trans Day of Resilience. Um and this year I wrote a poem um for that uh that national event um in honor of Leilin Polanco, who's a uh Dominican Afro Latina trans woman who was found dead in her jail cell in Rikers Island, um, this past Pride month, um, June of two thousand nineteen. Um and her story is so incredibly painful, because um, she's you know gone and was taken from us by the prison system, and her story says just it, it, again you know think about how all our identities layer together and how when we demand justice for the for the most marginalized folks it blows open the system in ways that actually create justice for everybody, not just for uh, a one particular or small group of people, um. And Lailene, uh, was uh, held uh, for two months in Rikers in solitary confinement because she didn't have $500 for bail. She got picked up on a misdemeanor, but they held her because she had previous prostitution charges that she hadn't shown up to court for. And so they said, oh, because you, you missed these other court days, we're holding you. Um, and then she had uh, epilepsy. Um, So it's believed that that's that she had an epileptic attack while she was in solitary and that's how she died. Um, And so like a a black, queer, trans immigrant woman who did sex work, was a part of the house scene. She was in the house of extravaganza, um, disabled, dies in the prison system. It's like it's actually incredibly predictable as painful and fucked up as it is at the same time it's incredibly predictable um and like the bond system failed her uh the way we criminalize sex work failed her poverty and gentrification in new york failed her the overfunding of, of prisons and the defunding of housing and schools and you know all these other resources that support these uh support folks failed her um and so for me I don't just see trans liberation as like a part of or connected to prison abolition. Again, I see it as like the core of prison abolition. And Stonewall is such an important example of that. It's like actually, you know, the queer liberation movement in this country, but begins with people fighting the police, begins with people rioting against the police and saying my, who I am existing as I am is not a crime. And folks weren't just asserting that about their identities as, as trans women of color, they were also asserting it about their identities as sex workers. They were also asserting it about their identities as poor um, and street-based and, you know, um, uh, unstably housed folks. Like, folks were asserting all parts of those identities and being like, it's not a crime to be who I am and it's not a crime to be struggling through the things that I'm struggling through. And I think for me as a a queer person who very strongly identifies as an abolitionist, um, I do think for me, that's something that's still uh missing in a way from a lot of the conversations that we're having and a lot of the organizing that we're doing um, is talking about how abolition is inherently a queer project and how, like, queer and trans people are at the heart of abolition from junk, from day one. Because um, sometimes I feel like we are, we have to, like, assert or, like, remind people that abolition is queer work, and I think it should be the other way around, um, especially given, like, how many folks impacted by the system and how many folks who are actively organizing and struggling against the system are trans and queer people, specifically trans and queer people of color. Um, I, I think a lot of us who are doing the work kind of like know that in the back of our minds that like it's queer folks who are running this, but like how often do we actually say that and how often do we actually acknowledge that and how often do we actually say like to fight against the police and prison system is inherently to do queer work. I think for me that's missing from uh, a lot of the conversations that we're having.
2: I was thinking in a sense of, for me, and it's the project that came to my head, I think that I don't like the fact that, you know, they only give one girl a one girl a platform. I want all girls to have platforms. I want any girl to have a situation that they have been impacted by the justice system or went through a situation that they feel like it was wrongly. Share it, you know, because that says a lot, you know, just you, you, you. All of these yous create a big of, you know... I think that's the impact so I don't like the fact that I was given just a platform I'm saying which is the fact that everything I've been through I understand that situation but I like to give it to other girls I'm saying you know I want what you went through I'm saying to be expressed too because I don't want to feel like oh well, well her story was more glorified than yours so you're not really no we all have situations we all go through a situation in life I'm saying and we feel like we want somebody to understand what we're going through so I really think that's a project that someone needs to, you know, I think I need to really get into. And like all the girls that I really click with, you know, tell their stories. I'm saying like share. I really think that's dope. You know, it was it would say a lot through the justice system looking at that. Like, well, these girls just want to be saying they went through these situations. Like now we need to re, you know, reevaluate ourselves.
3: And your story is so important. Stories like Lailene's are so important, like we need to tell those stories and we're so blessed to have you here to tell it, you know what I'm saying? And I feel you, because at the same time, it can also create this culture of like, wow, this horrible thing happened to Isha, rather than like, actually Me. this is happening everywhere. <laughs> the board.
0: That's what I'm trying to get the point yeah. of. Benji, I think you're talking a little bit about this um, question that we've been asking uh, different people. You know, we've asked it of, um, you know, immigrant rights activists asked it around um, even like anti-blackness and in court, just youth, mov- activist. youth activists mm-hmm. um, around how different movements um, fail to look at intersectionality in some ways. Right. And they either. Uh, scorn queer and trans activists and don't and think of uh, queer and trans activism as a very specific thing Uh, and that's by the mainstream LGBT community right like gay marriage same-sex marriage things like that um how do you think the prison abolition movement can kind of take on i think that what you're talking about which is to see the struggle um, as a queer and trans struggle.
3: I think part of that, we're already in the right place, having the right conversation, because I think part of that is actually teaching history um, and and teaching uh, queer and trans history as abolitionist history and the other way around. That it's like if we're talking about the history of the police and prison system. We're talking about homophobia and transphobia. And if we're talking about the history of, of queer and trans liberation, we're talking about struggles against policing and incarceration. Um, so I think like always asserting that uh, is a is a really important sort of part of the political education that I think is it's not not there. Um, like there's no reason we should be having conversations about like queer and trans identities that aren't talking about policing and incarceration, and there's no reason that we should be having conversations about abolition that aren't talking about how trans and queer people are, are impacted and have always been impacted um by the police and prison system and uh i think there's a lot to unpack and sort of why some of those conversations are missing because um, i feel like i don't even have a full answer myself um and i'm thinking a lot right now of the no cop academy campaign um which is a campaign that i was a part of and really proud of um the 18 month a long campaign here in Chicago to uh, shut down the construction of the $95 million uh, police academy that folks are still trying to build in West Garfield Park. Um, And a a thing that we've debated with each other or discussed a lot with each other behind the scenes was, was that a queer campaign or not? Um, Because we never called it that. And we never said, you know, this is a queer campaign. This is a queer led campaign. This is a, a coalition of queer folks. Um, Fighting the the construction of this cop academy, but it a thousand percent was like every adult ally who was at the core of that campaign was queer and or trans, and damn near every youth organizer, um, uh, the the youth who were were at the front and leading, uh, that campaign were all damn near. I don't want to speak for everybody's identity, but damn near all of them were queer and trans youth. A lot of folks, the first thing they're they're gonna say is not, oh, it was a queer and trans led campaign but i would argue that it was um but a conversation that we have struggled with behind the scenes is like well can we do we call it that in retrospect like why didn't we call it that in the moment when we were organizing it how do we understand that you know now that the campaign is over and wrapped up what are our reflections on it as the queer and trans people that organized it and that were a part of it um like like did we do enough to name it that way, or why didn't we name it that way? And and you know, I think we have our own reflecting as a coalition on that to be like, yeah, this was gay as hell. Like this <laughs> this campaign was very gay. Like why didn't we call it that, or or why doesn't everybody necessarily know that about it?
1: You know, it's interesting because when we did the, the the little segment with the ACT UP folks, there was this whole part of the discussion where they were saying, you know, it c- kept being called this. Queer or gay movement, but it, we didn't think of it as a queer or gay movement mm-hmm. because we were dealing so much with intersectionality and how HIV affected women and how it affected you know different communities differently. And you know the media always called us gay activists, mm-hmm. and it was much broader than that. You know, it was t- and it was you know, and the intersectionality word didn't really exist back then, right? Um, so it's it, it's like that. It's kind of interesting that you raise the opposite of that a little bit, but. Um, but you also very clearly both talked about this, you know, this the beginnings of like Stonewall and who, uh, who were, you know, who were out there fighting it, who started it, who were out there fighting in the streets, transgender, uh, people of color, you know. And um, this idea that that is the really spark For the contemporary, you know, whatever you want to call it, gay liberation, queer movements, the things that sort of got people activated and in the streets. And we're still dealing with, as Manny talked about, a community that, and the 50th anniversary celebrates those people, but every other day of the year still sort of rejects those folks in the sort of broader gay community. Um, and so how do you sort of how do you sort of discuss or how do you reconcile, um, you know b- bringing these issues, these bigger these other issues, whether it's prison abolition or violence against transgender uh, folks, or how do you sort of reconcile that with how the direction of the gay movement?
2: I think what we're doing now, just bringing more awareness is one. Um, like I said previously, um, just sharing our stories, as I say, as Black trans women, of the situations that we consistently keep going through, far as getting murdered. Um, I guess, you know, being aware, you know, your surroundings, who you have around you, I'm saying, you know, who you keep in your presence. Um, in a sense of just being safe, I'm saying, I would say that I'm saying, but just to bring more awareness, I'm saying, um, I just think I just, I would say more so just consistently keep, you know, just, I guess, speaking on it and just kind of keeping more awareness about it. I think that's something I can really just say the most.
3: And I think I would add that, because I think about this a lot, I think the, that disconnect, I think we often talk about it as a disconnect, like how can we be celebrating Stonewall and we're still calling the police on sex workers? How can we celebrate Stonewall and we're still, you know, kicking, you know, poor black queer and trans young people out of Boys Town? Like, how does that make any sense? And I think the older I get and the more I observe those discrepancies or those contradictions, the more I'm like, oh, this is actually on purpose. It's actually not like people are overlooking it's actually a a way of of sanitizing and of actually taking away the radical potential of really understanding that history and like I think about this with like Martin Luther King all the time that it's like people love to put Martin Luther King's name in their mouth but they don't love to talk about how he was actively anti-capitalist and that he was advocating for poor folks he was not advocating for the middle class he was you know all the people who are you know calling his name out to like fight for people of privilege. Like Martin Luther King was talking about abolishing capitalism. Martin Luther King was talking about ending U.S. imperialism and, and and he was deeply anti-war. Martin Luther King was fighting for poor folks, not just black poor folks, but all poor folks. And it's like, where is that in, in the legacy that we're celebrating? And I think it's it's actually on purpose that people want to uplift these radical figures without actually talking about what they was talking about because... You actually take away the power of those stories when when the the original storytellers aren't there to keep you in check, which is again why I think like your story and you actually being here to tell it is so important. Because I could put your name in my mouth and be like, you know, Isha ha- has this amazing story, and in Isha's name, I say we should do this. You know, and you could, you you aren't there to be like, uh, I'm not about that. Like, do not speak for me, Benji. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And and I think so. So I think piggybacking off of what you're saying, that I think the the story is important, the history is important, but also who's telling it is important, and to what ends? Because we could actually be talking the same history, but trying to take it in really different directions. And and, and so I think the intentionality that's the of how too. we share the history is so it important. It should
2: go in all different directions as well. Okay. Yes because history is it gravitates to people in different ways wow, that's yeah real. that's true
0: that's real they the people who benefited from those struggles and uh that radical struggle um they benefited from it and then they look back and they don't see that it was they don't actually see what the radical struggle was mm. they just see that they benefited from it and then they sanitize it, right? And so then there's a whole new group of people who are marginalized, who are struggling to get more and they forget about that. Um, one thing that you, uh, recently you, were, you wrote, uh, Benji, about um, the Laquan McDonald case, uh, specifically writing about uh, Jason Van Dyke who murdered uh, Laquan McDonald, um, that his conviction is not a step towards prison abolition. Could you explain more what that means or what you meant by that? I mean, people can read it, by the way. Really?
3: <laughs> I really appreciate this question because it's, I think, one of the most complicated questions in abolition, frankly, and it's one that I'm still struggling with and that I still, uh, I feel like I don't have a clear answer on, but I'm going to try and dig into it anyway. But um, I, I did write this piece, the one that you're referring to, about uh specifically uh convicting Jason Van Dyke of the murder of Laquan McDonald and what does it mean to be an abolitionist and like fighting for people to go to jail like what does it mean to say you're a prison abolitionist and be fighting um to get certain people in this case police officers who have killed black people um to get locked up and um I think this is one of the biggest points of tension in uh, at least a lot of the abolitionist circles that I'm in. And it's not a question that I think we debate in the open enough because I think we actually need to debate it. I think we actually need to like hash it out. Um, For me, I think where I come from it, it's really hard for me on uh, an emotional level to like really rally myself to organize to lock somebody up. Even when I think they have done something incredibly violent and incredibly harmful. And um, I also think it, for me, it, it, uh, it, it, for me, there's also actually a political strategy in saying, I'm not going to use my energy to try and lock up every individual police officer that's caused harm. I'm going to use my political energy to organize for the abolition of the police system. Because even I I think, even if we lock up every police officer that's ever done something harmful or violent, if that were even, if that were possible to do, if we could lock up every single one, the system that empowered them to do those things actually remains untouched. And even in some ways is, is further empowered because People believe like, okay, so the system works. If you do something wrong, you get locked up. When we know overwhelmingly, that's not actually what's happening. Um, so that's where I come from in my personal value or at least personal struggle um, with with fighting for convictions, even for, um, for police officers. Um, but I will say that this is a conversation that I have had with um, other black folks, specifically black women, um, black femme um and queer organizers who feel very differently than me and who um would wholeheartedly disagree with me um and a lot of what those folks bring to the table is well what about honoring what family wants what about honoring what community is demanding um and what about creating justice with the the means that we have um like yes we're fighting for a world without police and prisons but we don't have that world right now and there needs to be consequences for um for what you know harms are being done to the 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 most oppressed among us by this oppressive system, and I think for me a really uh, important like lesson in that was when when the I wrote that piece before the conviction uh, came down, um and the day that Jason Van Dyke actually was convicted, um Black Lives Matter put out a call and was like you know we need people to come downtown and support and I was free that day and I was like you know let me go downtown and support. And I went to City Hall, and I marched with folks through downtown, and it was this incredible moment of Black joy, because so many Black people, specifically Black young people, fought hard um, for there to be justice for Laquan McDonald with the means that they had, and with the systems in place, and and just feeling the joy of that moment. And, And it was a historic moment, it was like the first time in 15 years or something that a police officer in Chicago had been uh, convicted of murder. And it was like like no one could deny that that was a historic moment and that it was Black organizing that made it happen. And and just feeling the energy of that moment and seeing the support, especially from other Black folks in the city, that that, that moment brought, I really had to be like, okay, you know, who am I fighting for? Or, you know, whose demands am I listening to um, as an abolitionist? And so that, like, really challenged me. And it's still challenging me. um. So I feel like I, even though that's, like, my answer is, you know, I, I cannot or at least I have a hard time getting excited about, like, fighting for convictions, I also can't deny, like, the other frameworks and the other values that, like, other directly impacted people, other black folks, other um, folks in the abolitionist movement are bringing.
0: Isha, um, when you're interviewed, you usually get asked about incarceration and your advocacy work. Um, what are some things that you'd like people to know about you outside of those kind of narratives?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, first, um, I want them to know what I'm saying as an Aries. I'm a very kind-hearted, um, well-caring person. Um, I say to myself... Mm. and the things really I'm saying before I became like really having a platform to be an advocate and share my voice or share my story really I think I was really into modeling I love the fact that you know I was really confident with who I was I'm saying and I felt as though that you know mom always told me I'm saying you know if you was to be whoever you're gonna be You know, because she was kind of, you know, the mother that was kind of like, well, I know what you is. But look, I don't know how to, you know, deal with the situation. But she said, whatever you is, you better just be the best at it. You know, I always hold your head up proudly of what you're doing. So as a model, I felt like that was me. You know, I stood proudly of who I was, you know, so I always wanted to be a model. And I just love fashion. You know, I'm a fashion. I love fashion. I'm not into fashion as much as now because I got a lot of situations and things going on right now.
1: So, uh, Benji, um, you're you're known for um, your time in Chicago's ballroom scene as a, as an excellent Vogue dancer, um, and you also have um, amazing academic credentials. And so, can you talk a little bit about how you kind of make sense of? The academic credentials and the spaces where people don't have maybe the same access or educational backgrounds, and just talk a little bit about how you navigate all that.
3: I definitely, you know, I'm a suburban kid. I grew up middle class in the suburbs in Western Massachusetts. And so I come from a privileged background from JUMP. And, um, I started. I started actively going to the barroom scene in, in New York and participating in New York when I was 18. So right after I graduated high school, so I was kind of thrown into that environment pretty young, and just a lot. A lot of things were thrown at me that, as a very new to the game 18 year old, I was like not ready for. It. And I'm lucky I'm still here because I. I tell people all the time I could have gotten into a lot more trouble in those early days that I did. So I'm lucky that. I'm standing here before you in one piece, but, but that being said, I think, um, you know, I was in the ballroom scene before I went to college. I was, I was voguing and I was going to balls and in the scene before I was a student, um, in, in college. Um, so in a lot of ways, ballroom was teaching me some things before I had the academic background, that then I kind of had to mix those two things together as I went. Um, but I think Academic training, no matter what your identity is, because not I'm a middle class person, but not everybody who's middle class or wealthy has, you know, there are are folks from all class backgrounds that have access to academic uh, training and vice versa. Um, So I think academic training is privilege and it's like any type of privilege. You need to mitigate it and you need to whenever you come into any space, you need to be like aware of it and, and like check yourself about like whether your voice is getting more weight than someone else's just because of a credential that you have. Because um, that's all it is, is a credential. It doesn't mean you know anything more than anyone else. Or uh, You understand?
2: Uh, I definitely, yes. <laughs> I can definitely speak on that. Okay. So,
3: see, now I'm about to have to loop back to you.
2: Because it's just be that way from time. Right.
3: And something, something I think a lot about uh, is Miriam Kaba says that we actually need lived experience and political education, that in some circles we kind of fetishize or hold up people with the knowledge and the training and the big words. Um, but in other circles, we can hold up people with lived experience who haven't actually had opportunities to foot put their lived experience into a political framework or a larger historical context and Could like you actually you need both.
2: Stop and repeat that once again. <laughs> Let me say for the word for the people, you know. <laughs> the activists that's out here in the world okay. that you know say that we're for the other young and up and comings.
3: Okay. See, and it is it is really complicated cuz I think I think and this is what Miriam is really talking about both can be harmful potentially. That to kind of say, oh, you know, we're only centering people who know all the big words and have all you know all the fancy degrees and credentials it can lead to some really fucked up and harmful uh and misguided dynamics misguided organizing but so can um sort of centering folks who are survivors or centering folks who are the direct recipients of harm or you know directly impacted communities without political education and without framework and without clarifying like okay but as an org or as a uh, a coalition what are our values what what are what are we you know channeling uh these experiences towards and how are we understanding these experiences in the larger context and and the larger political fights that are happening and that actually we need both so all that is to say I think my academic background is a privilege and, when we're aware of both the, the privileges or the resources that we bring and the things that we're lacking, which, like, I've never been incarcerated. So, like, I'm lacking that experience. Like, I have no idea what life is like on the inside. So, I cannot speak to that in any type of way. When we come to the table with an awareness both of the resources that we're bringing and the resources that we're lacking, then we can actually piece together, like, okay, you have some lived experience that I cannot speak to. I have studied some things and have some, you know, experience, uh, reading and learning and talking about some things that I can bring to help kind of make some sense of that. Like, let's bring it together. We
2: bring some. We both bringing something to say. We both
3: bringing something to the table, rather than thinking, "Oh, whoever has the most academic training, that's the person." That's the person. Shap. Yes. Like, no, nope, that's not how it should work.
2: Well, that's the common. And I'm just a survivor here to tell my story and connect to some of the people that can understand where I'm coming from, you know, and you're here to share your story and whatever else, but you, and tell whatever you're partial, what you want to tell for people to connect to you. And that usually what I would think I'm saying, we're coming together for groups and, you know, organizing. That's what I feel this should be, yeah. you know, for a person that haven't went through a situation can sometimes sympathize. Like, hmm, I can just imagine, you know, despite if you would have had there, how far you probably willing to go you it's just sometimes it's just it's not always just to be just looking at and saying a person just should be just criticized off that in a sense
3: and for me i think you're hitting on the head because it's we say it a lot but I don't think we actually practice it a lot that everybody has things to learn. Everybody has things to bring to the table but also everybody has things to learn. And I think that's like a very simple and very is very simple. cliche even, you know, <laughs> thing to say. But like how are we actually practicing that? And how are we actually like coming to the table with the humility to be like, I have However many That's degrees, humbleness. And I have things to That's learn.
2: called humbleness. Right. Exactly. And not of us a lot of us not humble. Well it's just it's sad <laughs> to say. We're just not I'm humble because I don't went through so many trials and tribulations in life. And look, hey, I'm just blessed to be here to continue to tell my story, Lord, and help others. I'm saying maybe even grasp a situation, they don't have to go through a situation like myself. That's I'm. I'm just good for that, you know. And I continue to keep doing that despite how others look at me and judge me and look at me. How I look, I'm here to help the people that's not judging me, okay? And looking at me in a, as a blessing, mm-hmm. not something that I have to be this high mighty God because mm-hmm. ain't nobody God. You're in God because you telling the story. Or you got some. Come on, baby.
0: <laughs> I think <laughs> I think some of it too is like I would just kind of what you're both uh, talking about. It for me is about like representation, right? Mm-hmm. And how. In these moments, when you see more people of color mm. being represented, um, and kind of just you know, like our first black president, yes. you have our first black uh, lesbian mayor. Um, there's all these ways in which representation um, can mask our class, our privilege, what we know, and what our political education is, um, what our lived experience is. Um, and we don't openly talk about that. And I think we, if, if we do that, then we can identify who is on our side, who is in our movement, who is part of our movement, who do we want in our movement? Um, all of those kind of, um, you know, things. Cause Lori Liefa is a black queer woman who
3: needs some political education. <laughs> Lori Liefa is someone who shares a lot of my identities and is lacking some
0: frameworks. Needs, needs to do some workshops. And has all the credentials. Just how are the ways that we can address? You know, we talked uh in the beginning we talked about violence against trans women, um you know the Rikers Island uh murder, um by the system. How are some ways that we can address uh violence against trans women, uh, particularly trans women of color, black, uh brown women. Um,
2: for me, I think in a sense, um, a lot of trans women kind of going to like the still the sex worker thing situation still and i feel like if it was programs or just giving them other allies i mean other um other things to do besides just like the norms of what they normally doing it would kinda of open up doors for them to kind of fit in, in normal society, you know what I'm saying, like to kind of do normal things. And I feel like in a sense, that's why some of them are probably in a sense probably getting murdered in situations and some sometime. And just being sometimes just not being aware of your surroundings and having who you have around you sometime. You know I'm saying and just feeling like, okay, well, I trust this me. You know, trust should no go farther than no one. I'm saying you should trust no one. Because I don't trust anybody. You know, it's just I feel like it's a lot of things around just kinda like just setting up safety. You know what I'm saying and a lot of girls don't set up their safety in the right manner they just feel like okay well I'm this fishy girl and I'm just content with myself but no you can't be that way all the time you got to know I'm saying there's some people out here that doesn't like you you know there's people out here that kind of look at you and want to kill you at times so you got to always be aware and always be watching your surroundings and just I think it's just and then sharing more stories more so like the sharing part is okay to me but I think sometimes too sharing so much of us is consistently keeping and dying or consistently keep dying to me says a lot to the community to say well okay it's cool for us to do these to these trans people let's continue to keep doing this on because society only wants to put uh 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 highlight it and make it like it's a you know in my eyes i think because once the to keep happening then people kind of think it is norm. like okay well if i kill it, it ain't not gonna happen to me you know in my eyes, that's how i look at it in a sense so you know and keep highlighting it in a sense it does make it look good because we're losing girls rapidly but then in the other eyes it like, okay, well, in a man that if me being a person that's out to kind of hurt somebody, do harm to someone, I'm going to look at, okay, well, this happened on news all the day. So if I kill us today, I'm saying they probably won't be looking for me because in, system, in certain murders like this, in a situation in my case, and my um my situation, well, um, not to go another situation, but in my situation from what happened in, in um, the case, the trans girl I was with, um, Dante Goodman, um, Tiffany, Re- rest in peace, R.I.P. I'm saying, this, remember, I'm saying, trans women that have gotten killed. I'm saying, no November, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, she, they never really even did any like research on her uh uh, uh 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 case. Like they never looked and investigated more. This lady had got, well, I have gotten the news when they came and told me when I was in prison that she was um murdered, and when she was murdered, they said that she was like um tortured. So if this woman tortured, and I'm telling y'all the situation, how everything transpired with this young man discriminating against me, and this woman was tortured, don't you see this a hate crime? Like, you know, it's just the things about it that they didn't really go and investigate. They burnt the building down. It's just a lot of it shows with, like you was saying earlier, like the justice system really is just here to sometimes fail you in the sense like, okay, we don't want to put too much highlight and we really care because in actuality, they really don't. So I just say just to end this whole part about how I think will bring more awareness and safety is just you have to be more knowledgeable of what's going on your surroundings and just you as a person, I think. Because I keep no one around me. I say to myself, look, a guy I still kind of trust you sit over there. I'm going to sit over here just to watch you, just to get a feel of you. And I ask a lot of questions. And I want to know. It. Sometimes people be like, well, you talk too much. You want to know too much to listen, to know more about you, to know who in my house. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, you know.
1: I just want to ask you both about, you know, there's, I wanna, it's a popular culture question. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's, there's kind of, mm-hmm more awareness in mainstream media these days about transgender people and pose is one of the examples. I mean we obsessively talked about it in the huh. Crossroads Fun Lunchroom. Um can you can you just talk a little bit about how that kind of thing complicates or helps or hurts or just maybe run down a little bit about that kind of popular culture thing and having more people have access to characters I
2: can just I'm going to start in a, a little bit and I'm going to let him talk <laughs> and I'm going to jump back into it in a sense I think that that's a wonderful idea you know give us a, a, a platform now to really be ourselves like I said earlier I said sometimes we need that type of introduction to like just being in the real world like you know because we not really acknowledged as being humans in a sense and my ass sometimes I feel like I'm just saying when I come in the room people like all eyes on me like I just like I'm just this weird person just came in and that sometimes feel uncomfortable you know you come into a room you want to feel like okay I'm just no normal to anybody else I'm just human being that just shows a different sexuality you know like that's all so I think that's a wonderful thing but but it does, like I said, in a sense, like I'm saying for us being underground for so long, because I think in a lifetime when I was growing up, this wasn't kind of like, you know, public class. So it was like it was very underground and a lot of things that was underground, It wasn't a lot of things happening like that in my eyes or maybe probably in a sense of I wasn't I wasn't probably seeing it in the news or what I'm kind of being public as much. In my days, you know, I didn't see a lot of trans women every single day. And if they do say they might uh, uh, wrongly identify them by this male dressed in, you know, it wasn't as much as it is now. Like now it's like I think that having social media, it gives a lot of more of, okay, well, if I kill someone, I'm going to put it on social media. Or I, you know, It's just, to me, in the mindset of an ignorant, crazy person, that's what they're willing to do, I'm saying, looking for some type of uh, reaction from the world. Like, okay, well, I kill someone. I know the world going to take this I'm you know, saying That's my thoughts of it, but in a sense, to answer your question, I think that's a wonderful thing, how putting us in a platform of just being just normal peoples in the world. Like, we can do acting, we can do modeling, we can do whatever, you know, just. Make us norm. Like I said, I think Marsha P. Johnson said, I'm saying I just want to just make my awareness here. Like I wanna be aware that I was here. Like I don't want to feel like I'm saying I'm an outsider. Mm. You know, you wanna just be aware, like I'm here.
3: I really fucks with pose and I really fucks with uh not just the show itself, but but uh the team of people that's involved from the actors to the writers to just all the kind of folks that are behind that project, because so many of them are actually Black trans people, and so many of them are uh, members and former members of the ballroom, which I also really think is special um, and unique about that project. Um, So I really folks with Pose. And I do think that visibility um, initiates conversations, gives people something to point to, gives people a reference that, that can make sort of other kinds of conversations and education more accessible which I think is great. And I think the work of, of having the conversations and the work of doing the political education and the political organizing still has to come after. Um, and that's what I think a lot of times doesn't happen. Um, and for me, this is very, for me as a black person, that feels so important to underline because it's like people have been consuming black culture since forever. And that hasn't taught people to love black people. You know, People have been, uh, literally since this country's inception, consuming the images of Black people and, and consuming the art and the culture of, of Black communities, and that has not taught people to love, to share, to protect Black people. So we know from decades if not centuries of, you know, Black visibility that that having the, the person on the pedestal doesn't doesn't stop violence from happening to the community. Um, and so I think it's the same with any other oppressed identity. Um, so the, So just having a visible person, just having a TV show, uh, uh, a politician, you know, doesn't actually in and of itself translate to the valuing, the protecting, and the structural shifts that we need to, like, actually fight for, protect Black trans people. Um, So I so I would caution against, and again, one of the reasons I fuck with POSE is because I think ev- every and, and and any person involved in that project would actually understand this, that there's a lot more work to be done than just putting people on a TV show. And I think, I think that project actually comes from that base of knowledge, which is, uh, why one of the reasons why, I with um, and also going, going off of what Isha has said about sort of like, what do we need for, um, for black trans people, for, for black and brown trans women, um, to be loved and protected and fought for. Um, I think, and, you know, this is more of a, uh, a personal or, a, you know, inter-community conversation. But I feel like within the Black community, we do have a lot of work to do around education and around um, talking about, like, yeah, this is actually part of our community. It's always been a part of our community. This is this is not new. These are ancient identities. And, and we need to not just accept people, but, like, understand that Black, trans, and queer people are actually bringing us back and rerouting us in our history. As, as colonized um, and enslaved people. like They're actually taking us back. We are taking us back to our roots um, and not the other way around. We're not deviating from them. We're, we're reconnecting with them. I think we have a lot of work in the Black community to like really make that felt. Um, and I also think that so much of the violence that Black queer and trans people face is about all these other, again, intersecting systems because it's not like Black people are the only ones with the transphobia problem. It's not, you know what I'm saying? Like transphobia is definitely a universal issue. So I think also like a lot of the violence that we face within the community is about the the other emergencies and the other kinds of harm and trauma that we're all swimming in as black people. And so I think we need to talk about, again, think about intersectionality. I think we need to talk about all kinds of supports and all kinds of structural shifts and reparations for black communities writ large. Um, that all Black people, including trans and queer people, will benefit from. And I'm thinking a lot about this very historic decriminalization hearing that just happened in D.C. D.C. had a bill on the table to decriminalize sex work. And it was a huge, just the fact that the bill was on the table was a huge a huge deal. And it was overwhelmingly Black, trans, and queer sex workers um, that had got that bill even, you know, on the floor to be discussed. And Folks like, the sadly, the National Organization of Women flew in membership from around the country to stop this bill from happening that was specific to D.C. So you have local, you know, black, trans, and queer people in their city saying, this is exactly what we want. Like, we need this. And people of wealth, people of means who are not even from the region of the country coming in to stop it. And, like, I think we could do a whole podcast on sex work. I think sex work is a really important Uh, and complicated conversation we need to be having right now. Um, But that was a crucial moment for me where I was like, even if like, I believe sex work is work. And I believe if you want to do sex work, you should be supported to do that in the safest way possible. Even if you're somebody who disagrees with me on that, or doesn't feel me on that for you to be Flying in to take resources away from sex workers is like, what are you really about then? Because even if you're somebody who's like, well, I think sex work is bad and people shouldn't do it, then you should be fighting for affordable housing. You should be fighting for a living wage. You should be fighting for universal health care. Like, we know all the reasons why people go into sex work. If you really about that life, like, if you really don't want people doing sex work, then all these other resources need to be provided to support people. So we actually fighting for the same thing. So, Like you show your hand, you show your values when you want to, you know, stop the decriminalization of sex work. But you're also closing schools and clinics and gentrifying people out of their neighborhoods and, you know, taking away shelters from homeless folks. It's like you show your hand because if you really cared about marginalized and oppressed communities, then you'd be fighting for resources, not taking them away. So I think we need to question uh whenever people say they're fighting for somebody while they're taking resources away from them and while they're taking protections away from them we need to like look behind the look behind the curtain to see what's really going on there and for me that's an important question about how we fight for black trans people because so many of the people who say they're fighting for us are the same ones taking resources away from us um and and you can't you can't actually be fighting for somebody and taking the support systems they need to survive away from them so for me the question about trans liberation is is really questions about structural shifts that redistribute resources um to the most oppressed people which i think black trans people
0: absolutely fall into that category thank you so much
1: yeah, to thank both you. of you thanks so much thank, thank you. you thank, thank you, so you much for, for having, having us you. Yeah, <laughs> <been so much. laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of queering left The organizers interviewed represent just one example of the fearless movement building in Chicago that Crossroads Fund is proud to have supported since 1981.
0: Please visit our website for photos, videos, and other media related to this episode.
1: For more information on Crossroads Fund and the organizers featured in this interview, please follow Queering Left on Facebook and Twitter And sign up to receive email alerts of new interviews at our website, crossroadsfund.org.